I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I'm so excited to have Melissa Shaw here today with me. Um, I've been a, a bit of a fangirl of hers um, without having connected to her um, personally, which happens a lot in the social media day and age. Melissa is a yoga therapist. She has her master's in public health and um, she's an incredible writer as well. And uh, Melissa, I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Jill. Um, so first, I guess before we get started, um, I'd like to, or, or to get started, can you, can you tell me a little bit about your background um, in, in the yoga and wellness space, in your experience as an Indian woman navigating that space here in the West, where it has been co-opted by, by white people? Yeah, thank you. Um... So I, I, re- I grew up practicing yoga from when I was pretty young, probably younger than I think didn't know what it was. Um, but my mom, my mom had always been practicing yoga. Her, my grandmother and my grandfather, too, were both very um, into Ayurveda. So it was kind of just a part of our family, even though I didn't fully have language for it or recognize what it was. Um, but when I was about 11 or 12 years old, my mom started, I would say, I want to say coaxing, but it was really like pushing me and my sister to do yoga more regularly. Um, I was diagnosed with asthma at the age of two. And so it was pretty severe, like my whole childhood. And of course, I mean, you're a physician. I know you know this, but like what comes with that is like a lot of sinus colds, a lot of congestion. Um, and, you know, what I know, what I know now, what I didn't know then was just a lot of fear. You know, every time like you would have a symptom or like you couldn't breathe, it would like always like bring up all this stuff. But um, my mom at one point, you know, I was taking a bunch of different like steroid medica- medication, things like that. And around middle school time, my mom was like, enough's enough. Like you have to like take this more seriously uh, in terms of yoga. And she's like, I'm, and I'm your mom. And so you're probably not going to take me as seriously. And so you're going to go and learn from one of our family friends. <laughs> and so my mom would take my sister and I like several days a week after school to our family friend's house, um, where he would teach. And it would just be like an adult Hatha yoga class. And my sister and I were like, I think 11 and 13 at the time, maybe, or maybe even younger. And there was, there was this concept of going to like a kid's yoga class or a tween's class that we have so much of that now. It was just was not a thing or not a thing that I knew of anyway. And so my sister and I would go to our family friend's house and we would just do this like two hour adult class or like hour and a half adult class. Um, and you were expected, you know, you were expected to like give your full attention the whole time. And I definitely enjoyed it, but there was a huge part of me that was always just like, never wanted to share it with like any of my friends or anyone else I knew because yoga, everyone was like, what is that? Or you're so weird because you're Indian, you know? And so I always was like, oh, I have to like do this thing after school or I have to go to like dance class or something like that. And um, I just never, I never really shared it in a way that now my nieces and nephews who've been doing yoga since they were like two or three years old uh, um, now. And they're like, 
in elementary school or going to middle school, they're all like so proud of their yoga practice. You know, they're like, look, I can do all of these things. And that just, I just don't ever remember that being my experience um, when I was younger, but it was like this whole other world for me, which was also really cool. Um, so that's, that's sort of how I started practicing as a way to really help, as a way to really help my asthma when I was younger, which it did. And then I've, ever since then, I've just been, um, I wouldn't say I was hooked in the sense that I was like, I mean, I was 13 years old. I wouldn't say that I was, you know, so interested and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to study this stuff, but I definitely enjoyed it. And I saw, and I saw how it helped. And I think we say this, like my teachers in yoga therapy say this a lot, that yoga is an experiential practice. Like you can tell someone all day long that they should be doing yoga, right? Patients or clients or friends, like this is really what you need to do. This will help your back. This will help this, this will help that. But none of it really matters until the person actually has the experience. Um, and I definitely like looking back on it now, I really felt that when I was younger. Um, I saw how it helped my asthma symptoms so much and it helped my confidence. Um, and because of that, it kept on leading me back to the practice. I just didn't know what that link was at the time. Um, yeah. And then around high school is when my teacher was like, you know, I think you're ready to start studying to be an instructor if that's something you want to do. Um, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, and it was very much like a traditional one on, you studied with your teacher one-on-one. -on -one. He lived in New Hampshire and my mom, my family, we'd all go up there for like three or four days and all learn for the weekend. Um, and that's how I started like learning really how I started learning yoga therapy and learning how to be a teacher um, probably around like 17 or 18 years old. Wow. Um, ever since then, I've just been like, yeah, I've just been studying <laughs> ever since I'm 32 now, which is pretty, it's just pretty crazy. Like looking back, um, you know, and starting out, like just not knowing, right? You don't even know what you have until you see, until you see how yoga has been really stripped down of all these elements that were so, um, I could imagine my practice without those things. Yeah. And I had never, you know, I started practicing when I was so young. I hadn't been to a yoga studio until I was probably 23 or 24. Um, it never even occurred to me to go to one. But then I was broke in grad school and I was living in Manhattan with my cousin who sweetly let me live on her couch for two years. And <laughs> I like had no, I, you know, just was a grad student. I didn't have money and I was living in New York at that. And so I remember finding all like the monthly deals to try different studios and stuff because, um, and that's really how I ended up in those spaces. And it was my, it was really my first like direct experience with cultural appropriation, I would say. I mean, I've, in terms of yoga, like I think I've experienced a lot of situations when I was younger and I just, it's like, I was so shocked, like it didn't register. But I think um, when I was older and started going to studios, there was a part of me that, there was a part of me that was like, some of this is really not okay. And there was another part of me was like, if I don't teach this way, no one's ever going to come to my class. Mm. And it was like these like two parts, I think that have just, that have just always been there until recently when I've just been really encouraged by amazing like friends and teachers in my life to be like, actually, like you can talk about these things and also people will listen. And also it's really important that you do. Um, that's been, a, I guess it's been a little bit about my experience so far um, or from when I was younger. Have you had experiences where you felt unwelcome because you are Indian, like you were not the norm. Was that your personal experience? Yeah, you know, um, I do think about that sometimes because I feel like everywhere, I really haven't practiced at that many different studios, to be honest. Um, I'm sort of, I know a lot of people might be like this, but my husband and I are both like, you know, when we find a place, we find a teacher, we're just 
it's like we stick there like glue usually. So I haven't like hopped around like enough to to really say that, but I, I don't, I've never had the experience where somebody's like, you know, you can't come. And really people don't say, like, I've never really heard anyone be like, you. it's not, they don't directly say those things, right? It's in everything else. Um, it's like, it, I've seen it, I guess in the ways I don't feel welcome is like when I've been like exotified studios or when you just walk in and you're like consistently, like I am the only person that's not white in this room, always, including the teacher. I think other ways I felt like, really unwelcome or just um really out of place is when you know i would hear music of like indian music being appropriated or like mantras being appropriated and they're on like full blast and then the class is like being choreographed to the music and it's just like you know objectively you see it and you're like okay you know whatever people are having a good time and they're experiencing yoga but it's not really the point you know and i i feel like in those ways i felt you know these aren't the spaces for me and there's no effort being taken from the studios or teachers um, or places I've been, there's no, there's no, there was no effort being taken to actually like rectify any of those things. And I definitely didn't feel safe bringing them up. So I guess in those ways, yes, but, you know, I've definitely had friends who have had personal experiences that have been like really harmful. And mm. I don't, I don't think I can speak to like necessarily having the same ones. What are some, so you, you mentioned, thank you for sharing that. Um, what are some of the things that when you, you said two things, A, that there's something wrong with this and B, how could, like, it's not the same without these things that we're missing. So can you go into a few more details on, on yeah. two categories? Yeah. So the way, the, the yoga that, um, or the yoga studies that I learned growing up were at, um, the Vivekananda Kendra school in Bangalore in India. And my teacher learned from there and he had his own yoga school in the US and him and his wife, you know, ran the school together essentially. And it was fairly, it's, you know, it's fairly small. We had like a really tight knit group. They were, they're great at what they do. Um, and that was my only experience ever learning yoga aside from with my mom. And my mom learned from my, we had the same teacher. She's trained in the same tradition as well. And so, I think one thing I kind of learned from, I learned from that is I learned really how to like approach yoga as a therapeutic way of practicing meditation, pranayama especially. But once I went into studios like in New York and I saw how classes are being structured, I was like, oh, they might've just learned things differently, right? Like I, I, I didn't really know about like many other traditions at the time. I didn't even know how to use a yoga block or yoga strap because in our tradition, like we didn't have any props. And so even that, right, seeing it, I'm like, the, what came to my mind first was like, oh, it's probably just like, you know, some different style. I just don't know what it is, which is also true. But there's this other piece where I'm like, well, these studios are really packed and they're like teaching in this specific way with music and like with all this stuff. And I'm like, it's almost like I didn't trust like my ancestry or my heritage enough to like rely on that to be a teacher, which is actually like really sad now thinking about it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I had, I had all the tools, you know, I was, my, our school was like very extensive. You had to do a thesis on a specific like illness or issue. And you had to do a whole like 30 page thesis on like how yoga helps those certain issues. Um, you had to take exams. You had to do like oral exams and practical exams. Like there was, it was actually like very extensive and this school had nothing to do with yoga alliance, which is like a whole separate thing. Um, but then, you know, 
at the same time, like I, I was born and raised in New York, even, you know, in an Indian family, but I'm, you know, still, you know, like grew up as like an Indian American. And there was just this other part of me that was like, oh, if I want to teach classes, like it needs to look more like that. People are not going to like, people are not going to be able to relate if I make it quote unquote too Indian. And I, and at that time, I didn't really see any South Asian teachers in the quote unquote, like mainstream, like yoga space. Um, or I, I know that they were there and they're still there. Um, I just, you know, had no, no exposure and wasn't connected to any of them. So I think like when I started to teach in studios, like, you know, a couple of years after grad school, there was like, I had taken, I had taken another training since then too. And there was like this feeling of, um, who you are inherently does not actually belong here. So you need to change and shift whatever that is so that people will, you know, relate to you more some way. I don't know. That's, I guess like, that's what's coming to mind right now. There might be something else there that needs to be uncovered. <laughs> um, and, you know, that lasted for quite a long time. Um, and, you know, I never really had, I never had anyone say my classes were too white, but I definitely had people say my classes were too traditional or that they were too Indian. I've had people say that for sure, or that it was a little too woo-woo for them, or it was a little too out there. But it's like, no one ever says, oh, you're, but your classes are so like sterile. Oh, they're so whitewashed. They're so cultural. No, like nobody says that, right? Because the, that's what the mainstream culture is doing. And it's so interesting. And that, and that kind of, at least for me, contributed to that feeling of, you know, I can, I can sprinkle this stuff in, but not too much if I actually want to be like, whatever it means to be successful. And that's when I started like teaching more in terms of like the Westernized like studio space, that's a kind of mentality. I didn't know I had it at the time. Like it was just like a part of my identity and what I did, but like a few years later, I'm like, oh, okay. This is like a real problem because you're starting, I was starting to like resent how I was teaching and I wasn't like finding as much joy in it. And I couldn't really, I didn't really know why I figured it was because I was teaching too much or teaching too many classes, but really a few years later, um, with the help of like one of my current teachers, um, in the Vinyoga tradition, it was like, oh, you actually like, I was very clear on what it, on the direction I wanted to take with my teaching, but that feeling of Shraddha or like in Sanskrit, like confidence or like trust or faith, it just wasn't there. But like, I knew, I knew exactly where I needed to go. It was like that trust of you know, will, will people respond? And this whole idea of, you know, being a teacher, it's like not about making people like you. And that's, a, that's like a big part of my personality, but my patterning, right? It's like you, I want to be liked and I want to be accepted yeah. and I want to belong. I want people to like, you know, a few years ago, I was like, I would have loved if everyone in my class was like, oh my God, that was so great. And now, thankfully, you know, I have like so much more clarity and confidence around that area where it's like, I'm not here to entertain you. And that's like a lot of what like mainstream yoga or like, I would say like Western yoga has become. It's like, it's a class of entertainment. Like who has the best music? Who does the most challenging poses? Who choreographs it in like the coolest way? And it's just, just not interested in that, you know? Um, and it's so frustrating because it's like the teachers out there who really understand that and are really getting to like the function and like the essence of what they're doing like we're all having to like take this like uphill battle to get there. Yeah. So that's how are people were like when, once you started tuning into your mm -hmm. trusting your ancestry and your heritage, 
and, and putting that out into yoga spaces. How was that? How has that been received? Um, I think pretty well. I mean, I'll never know if there were, I'm sure there are people out there that like, oh, her classes were so great. And now she just chants all the time. You know, I'm sure there, I'm sure there are people like who stopped coming to my classes because it was like too much, you know, for that more. Um, you start talking about like current events and how that ties into our yoga practice. And there are people who don't like that, you know, and they want to come because they think that yoga is an escape and it's not. Um, and so, and I, I respect that and I get that, you know, people are where they are. And um, I think initially, you know, people definitely leave, right? But one thing, one of my colleagues, um, one of my colleagues shared with me a couple of years ago, she's like, you know, when you start like really taking this path, not just in your teaching, but, you know, speaking up for like what you believe in or standing by that, she's like, people will leave, you know, people will unfollow you people won't like it. They'll feel like more audacity to like challenge you. She goes, but you also don't know when you open that door, you also don't know who you're opening it up to as well. Um, and that like, that has like, it always makes me cry when I think about it, but <laughs> that like, that has always stayed with me because it always helps me give, like always gives me that confidence whenever I'm like, you know, these like five people have like never come back to my class and they probably never will. Um, but I think, you know, the support of like my colleagues and teachers and friends, and also like with my personal practice, that's been like the cornerstone of really staying connected to like what your role is or what your dharma is. And that's like, I mean, that's the most important thing, but you know, people did leave. No, I don't, I, you know, I've had, I had a couple of places where I worked at where they had some problems with, you know, what I was putting in my teaching, but for the most part, I was pretty, I don't know. I was pretty untouched in a sense, like no, like no one, no one, I never really had anybody, studio owner or student, you know, say anything really problematic to my face. But I think the positives that came out of it outweighed so much, like it outweighed like any potential negative because one, I felt like, okay, I have the confidence now to actually pare down the classes that they're, you know, they're fun and they're great, but they're not really bringing me that sense of like fulfillment. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not fair to the students. That's not fair to me. It's not fair to the studio. And so over the last few years, I've like slowly like pared down how much I was teaching and it opened this whole door of like, Oh, actually working one-on-one -on -one with patients and clients is really where I can like teach yoga. How it was always intended to be taught like to the individual. And it's so hard to teach a group class like that because everyone's coming in with different experiences, you know, and everyone's coming in with different things that happened to them that day. And you think the problem with like the way yoga is often taught now, this culture appropriate way is like, you get like this, um, you get like a handout almost of like, this is what you're supposed to teach. It's like, no, yeah. like you're actually supposed to like look at the person or look at the people in your class and everything, everything fits around like their form. You don't like make them push themselves into this box of what yoga is supposed to be. It's the other way around. And that's, all, that's, you know, from at least like the traditions I learned in, like it was always taught like that. So having more space to work one-on-one -on -one allowed me to, gave me like some of the confidence to step away from, you know, always jumping into that space of like, how can I change myself to be what people need me to be versus like, how can I be more of who I am and whoever is gravitating toward that to like do that work, those people will come. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's so beautiful. 
And I'm, I'm thinking about the, the Ruby sales interview that I did on this podcast that so I did. Good. So, so good. <laughs> and now I'm seeing why it resonated. I mean, it's amazing on its own, but I can hear how, what she talked about, you know, we kind of give parts of ourselves to, to fit into this mold of mm -hmm. what whiteness says everything's supposed to be. And it feels horrible. And then you're kind of going through life not not relying on your ancestry and your heritage and your traditions to keep you grounded and to keep you whole and um yeah that was a whole other <laughs> that was a whole other experience yeah, that you. yeah um, so true so what does anti-racism mean to you i like to ask people that question it's um it's a big question i get so many different answers from different people so there's yeah, no, there's I think, there's no you know, hearing, um, I think it was Ruby sales interview, right? Where she said like, I don't like the term anti-racism, you know, right. that like stuck with me so hard. I mean, I mm -hmm. still think, you know, the term anti-racism is so important, everything it means, but the idea of like being against something, but not really saying what you're for, not that everybody does that, of course, but it really, I mean, it really stuck with me and made me think about like, you know, what does it actually mean to me? And I think, the idea of anti-racism is like the first thing that comes to mind is like it's a daily practice mm. it has to be you know has to be a part of like everything that you do the way you communicate the way you function in your relationships your approach to your own yoga practice how you look how you um you know, in terms of in terms of anti-racism and yoga like how you look for your teachers you know how you look for the classes that you do um one of my friends and teachers avita she I wrote down a quote that she, I just heard her talk on the phone and I like, I was like, I need to write that down. And it's like, I think of anti-racism and I think of this quote that she said, like, who are, like, who are you seeking for knowledge? Like, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, what kind of knowledge are you seeking and what kind of knowledge seeker are you? And like those three questions, I'm like that, anti-racism and wellness, I mean, probably everyone, I think anti-racism and wellness is what I think of. It's like, what gaze are you using to deem whether something is a value to you or not? Yeah. And if you're not like always thinking about that, cause you have to be, if like you grew up in the West, you need like, you basically have to always be thinking about it. Or if you, if you grew up in a post-colonial world, like my parents did in India, you know, all, all the post-colonial trauma that they don't even I mean, they know, but maybe they don't, they don't like fully, haven't fully like realized it. Right. That like all my husband and I have both of our families like living in a post-colonial world too it's that white gaze is just like always there all the time and I think anti-racism is like asking those questions over and over again everything you do when you're looking for um a teacher training to take are you looking at it through that white gaze do you only see something as valuable if it's led by white teachers you know uh, the, the extreme opposite right are you frantically looking for indian teachers because you think like that will be authentic yoga too it's like well that's exotifying indian teachers right because we're not all one and the same either um i'll say for now like that's part of what it means to me that's what's coming up that's so beautiful um i love and what type of seeker are you because i've been struggling a lot with the white gaze and white centering um because you can't not you know it's it's there it's so pervasive and looking back at the way that I have and continue to, but hopefully a little less now, um, judge the authenticity or the, not even authenticity, because that's a word that's fraught too, but like the value of something by, does it fit my little world 
what, what my eyes are used exactly. to and what my experience is. And I've totally done that with yoga. And now I find myself, the studio that I had been going to, like, I stopped going right before COVID and I cannot imagine going back in there. I can't even yeah. walking through there. Um, even though they now hired a black teacher and even though they now do fundraisers, I just can't, that, that doesn't align with, with me, but it, it took a long time to get there. And I still struggle with white centering. So these three questions are great. Um, one of the things I loved about that, that first connected me to you without you even knowing that I existed was um, <laughs> these daily anti-racism emails. Um, and I'll put the links to those. I'm just making a little note that I'll put the links to those in the show notes. Um, Nicole Cardoza, I, I post about her a lot on my Instagram, um, she, a daily email about different topics relating to uh, anti-racism. And, and you had written one about spiritual bypassing, which blew my mind into a million pieces because I kind of knew what it was and was working towards understanding it, but you really just made it so clear. Um, and I have passed that along to so many people and, and used that as a like, start here, not just start here. Cause it wasn't like basic, but it was just so well-written and so illustrative. And you, you pointed out an Instagram post and you and I talk, have talked about this that I know you kind of maybe were thinking about whether or not you should have linked directly to it, but I think it was so, <laughs> it was such a good, yeah. cause I looked at it, honestly, I followed the link and I looked at it and it was like every other person in my meditation tradition, every other white person in my tradition posts the same stuff. Yeah. And it's, I didn't recognize what was bad about it until I started reading the comments. Yeah. All the work I've done, like all this work I've done and I still like couldn't see it right away. And so I think that was so eye opening and jaw dropping for me was, holy crap, there's so much problematic with this post that is just normalized by our culture. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how people in the white gaze who are so used to centering whiteness, because that's what happens, how can we start to, you, I mean, you mentioned these three great, great questions that, you know, what, who are you seeking for your knowledge? What, what type of knowledge are you seeking and what type of seeker are you? But like, are there specific things? How can someone know before they click a light or follow someone or decide to go to their class? What are things they can look for? And is that an answerable question? And if not, that's okay too. Um, first off, I'll, I'll just like reemphasize those three questions came from Avita Bunsi. She's also oh, okay. a yoga teacher and she's awesome. Um, and I can give you her name after the, after yeah. the podcast too. Um, I don't know if it's an answerable question because I mean, it is and it isn't right. Like I can give you a bunch of things, like here's a checklist things to look at. Right. And it is a good place to start. But the reason I don't think it's necessarily answerable is because it still puts it still takes away the own, it takes the onus away from the person having to look at themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're, if I'm like, if I'm going on Instagram and I'm looking at this person's account and I'm like pointing out all this stuff in them, it's like, well, what actually led me to them in the first place? Like, who was I following that told me this is a person I should look at? Like what, like, I think those, I think those questions are the places people need to start. And I think that get that gets missed so much in the yoga industry here, every, and with social media, is so helpful in so many ways. And one ways it hasn't really helped that because it takes all of the power away from like you having to look at yourself and we can just like spotlight other people all the time. Right. Even with that, even in that spiritual bypassing email, right. Where I linked to this particular teacher's Instagram post as an, as an example of um, 
you know, cultural, spiritual, or cultural or spiritual bypassing the time of COVID, right? It's a great example. And at the same time, right, everything before those examples is what people really need to be doing, right? It's like, here are some examples that you see out there. But it's not like, you know, we have this checklist and it's like, don't go to a teacher who does this, don't go to a teacher who does that. It's like, well, why are you actually gravitating toward them in the first place? Mm -hmm. It's not about them being like good or bad, right? Like, I don't know. I think like in yoga and Ayurveda, like one thing I always come back to with my clients, like it's not that pattern. We all have patterns and we need them, right? A pattern is like knowing how to speak English with you, with you on this podcast or, um, you know, knowing how to like boil water on my stove or whatever these, like, it's not about good. And it's not about good and bad. It's like, at some point, there are some patterns, they just stop being useful for us. And so they might have like, there's some patterns I had when I was younger, about like my race and my identity that were that served a really important function at that time, it, like might have helped me to survive while I was in school when I was always the only Indian person besides my sister, mm-hmm. or survived a lot of other like racist encounters. And there was a way my system responded to that to like help me function. And as an adult, they don't really serve me anymore, but I still like we, I and a lot of us still hold on to them, right? Because they're really familiar and they're so deep seated. And I think that's like part of like what that white gaze is, right? It's so in all of us that we don't even we don't even know we're doing it. Yeah. And so it always comes back to like, do you have a practice? Are you doing a practice? Are you working with a teacher who like not only understands you but understands like the lineage and tradition that they learned in, they have a sense of humility toward the practice. Are they doing that? Um, I think those are things that people can look for, but it really comes back to just like looking at your own life and seeing how that white gaze is present. Like I, you know, never grew up wearing like wearing leggings or yoga pants. I mean, yoga pants weren't a thing when I was younger anyway, but when yoga pants started being like I don't want to say yoga pants, I'll say spandex pants started becoming like more popular. You know, I've definitely worn them. I definitely have some pairs of like, you know, tight like spandex pants. There was a time where that's all I wore when I practice yoga because like I have to have like my leggings. And then at some point, um, I started to think I'm like, I never wore this crap when I was younger and practicing. I wore like loose pants or like pajamas or like my Indian clothes. And my teachers never wore any of these things. And it's not to say like, if you like it, fine, right? But it's again, it goes back to like the patterning. It's like, what is your relationship to all of these things? Like, why are you inherently, when you, when you see a yoga teacher training ad on Instagram and it's a team of white teachers, are you thinking, are like, is there a party that's already thinking like, that must be more valuable than a team of like black and brown teachers? Yeah. No one wants to say that out loud, right? But I do think like, those are the questions like we need to be asking ourselves if we're even going to start on that path of like dismantling it. We can't just dismantle something if we don't even know what the root cause is. But I yeah. think anyway. Performative in that way. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point. And thank you for, for bringing that point up because we attract what we know and what yeah. we see and what makes us, feel. I'm just thinking of an example right now, the movie soul, which I just watched and like loved. Yeah. And then I read this, this woman posted on my, on my Facebook group, my conscious anti-racism Facebook group. And I, and I've started to think like, like the queen's gambit. I'm like, there was definitely something problematic if you haven't seen it or have about her friend. And I, I can't remember the name of the character right now. It's, it's a black, a black woman who like, 
plays a, a role in it. And I'm like, I know there's something problematic, but I can't quite get it. And then I think, I think it was actually, maybe it was me and white supremacy that I'm reading or by Leila Saad, or maybe it was an anti a daily anti-racism email talking about like the tropes, you know, the, the white, the black savior, the magical black woman. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm starting to recognize that like, there's going to be something wrong with this. I might just not know what it is yet. And then being like open to hearing about it. So then I saw the, a, a YouTube video about like the five major problematic things about that movie. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, I was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. It was so good. <laughs> and I'm like, not even embarrassed because that's just my indoctrination, you know, and, and I'm learning like, okay, I can see this YouTube. I can enjoy the movie for what it was and also recognize that there's a lot in there that's problematic and to learn about myself. But yeah, like I'm going to think something's amazing if it resonates with me in my worldview and depending on what that worldview is and what I'm trained to perceive, that's how I'm going to see it. Yeah. Um, did you see the movie? Did I did see the movie. Yeah. Um, I really liked, I, I mean, I really liked the whole idea of the movie. Um, my family's really big on karma and afterlife and all of that. Um, they're pretty huge on it. So but when we watched it, I was like, uh, it, it, it was great in a lot of ways, but though some of those problems I hadn't, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen any of like the follow-up videos or about the problems with it. But during, during the movie, my husband and I were watching and I was like, do you think it's weird that a white woman, white woman's voice is in this black man's body for like a majority of the movie? I was like, there seems to be a problem with that. I was like, I don't know if we can keep watching this. And he's like, yeah, he's like, there's, there were so many options for actors and actresses for that role. There were so many opportunities. Right. But like, it's just really disappointing, you know, and it's, it's like, um, I feel like, you know, even with movies like that, that almost like fakely center, black people is like really problematic yeah it, feel, it feels very performative it's like oh yeah you're so diverse but like actually actually you're not really willing to take that extra step right because I don't know what all the reasons might be um but one of the reasons I can think of is like it's more palatable if it's this way more people will watch it if it's like this people can't stand to see a black person actually the whole movie um and those are some of the issues like that those are some of the issues that I've heard about with other films right that like seem to center people of color, but like not quite that much to like where they're not really, they're not really like the focal point of the movie. And I think that's such, it's such a huge problem. And it's like, you see that in yoga all the time, right? Like we'll do all the things that make, that make the studio look South Asian, we'll look quote unquote authentic, but we're not actually gonna like do the work to address like the issues in yoga. Or we're not actually gonna do the work to say like, oh, this is why we have this like particular Hindu deity in our studio. This is what it means to us. This is why it's there. It's like, it's all just there and it's all around, but that effort that actually makes a person of color really feel seen, it's like mainstream culture is just like not willing to do that. And I think that's what's so frustrating. Yeah. Um, anyway, that, that was like, that was my issue with it. But I have to say, I didn't, I didn't, I haven't followed up yet with anybody's commentary, which I'm looking forward to doing. Yeah, I'll send you, I'll put the link to that. Um, <laughs> I have so many fun. I love sharing links for things in, in the show notes. Um, when we, when you and I were talking before about, um, uh, before we did this interview, um, you mentioned something about MVSR and I've been like, 
mindfulness-based stress reduction for anyone who uh, is not familiar with that. And, and it, I feel like there's, there's appropriation in there and I feel like there's something that needs to be addressed, but I haven't met anyone who's been able to talk about it comfortably with me, like who, who felt like they knew and they're like, oh, let me just ask my teacher. Cause I'm, I'm uh, colleagues and friends with a lot of people who teach it, but that's not something that is explicitly taught. I don't believe in their training. And I think you said something like, oh, that's a whole other can of worms or some, some type of thing. And I was wondering if you could comment about that. I'd love to hear your, your perspective on, on that. Yeah. Um, you know, I have, I have other colleagues I can point you to that teach MBSR and a lot more familiar with like the history of it than I am. Um, you know, I know that the guy who really made it mainstream, like he had to change the name to like make it more palatable. Um, which is again, the beginning of like the whole problem, right? That um, MBSR, Ayurveda, Tai Chi, yoga therapy, acupuncture, the list kind of goes on and on, right? And there's so many techniques used in like psychotherapy now that come from ancient practices too. Um, I think my, like one of my issues with like using this te these techniques in like, um, like Western medicine or in the healthcare industry is like, it's it, it's all kind of like the same issue like over and over and over again but i think the big thing in like the the medical um in western medicine at least in my experience is like the argument the argument is often like oh we're trying to like make it more accessible for patients we're trying to make it more accessible for people to benefit from it and isn't the benefit of the practice the most important thing right which of course if somebody says that and you're also a healthcare provider, um, like I am as a yoga therapist at the clinic I work at. When somebody says that to you, right? Like you're never, you don't want to be like, no, nope, no, nope, the patient getting better is not the most right. important thing. Like, like no, no, like doctor or nurse, <laughs> no one ever says that, right? And I think like that to me is like it's so it's interesting to me, I, and I definitely want to explore it more. But um, this idea that you know we're protecting the patient by like diluting it and making it the certain way I'm always so interested to see like who came up with that reasoning someone someone decided that at some point right or we like not someone but like our culture collectively decided that at some point it didn't just happen like overnight and um I think you know I did like a talk on a, like a really short talk on cultural appropriation with some of my colleagues at this clinic I work at and they're it was our like diversity, um, equity, inclusivity uh, working group. And they were just super open to hearing about it, which is great. And when we started talking about that, like one of the discussions we had is like, you know, at our hospital, like who decided that we like couldn't use certain words in our yoga therapy and Tai Chi classes or that it has to be called MBSR and not like what it's traditionally called or that we don't talk about the history of like where, you know, mindfulness like came from and like, who, like where, when, when and where was this decided? And I was just telling them like, you know, if like, let's actually think about tracing it back to like where it came from. And more likely than not, it came from like a group of white people who like worked at these hospitals or at this healthcare like industry. And they just like decided it for everyone, you know, um, not outright, not by saying that, but by not saying it right. Or by silencing or by saying, okay, but can we call it something different? Right. And, um, I think there's so much talk in healthcare about patients benefiting from things and that being the most important thing, but we don't really think about what is it actually doing to the people from that culture that are actually offering those practices. And like, why is that, why is that not like just as important yeah. if they're the ones who are actually, who are actually passing it down. Um, so I think with MBSR, um, I think like what, 
what is so problematic about it is like, it's so stripped down at this point that I don't even know if, if you went to like a clinic or you went to a hospital and said, Hey, I want to do a talk on the history of this. It would be like crazy, you know, depending on where you go. Sometimes people might be open, but that's never even suggested. Like we're, we all just accept it. Like, yep, this is what it's called. And then we're like training a whole new generation of teachers to teach another whitewashed version of it. They're going to train a whole new generation of teachers. And it's like, it's such a problem because we're doing all this work where we think of like protecting the patient or not offending them. We don't even think about like, we don't even give those people a chance to actually learn anything new or to expand their mind. We just assume that they don't want to. And I think that's super, super harmful because it's, I mean, it's being done to kids in schools too with yoga as well. But I think that's, to me, like that's the most harmful thing. Do you think that part of it stems from like separation of church and state and that people feel like if you talk about yoga, then it's religion. And if you talk about these things, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering the intersection of that plus xenophobia and people not being willing to do things that are not the white Christian way, but like, don't be bringing that religion into my child's existence or into my healthcare existence, you know, that other thing, which was designed, I think, to protect religious persecution, but then, then ends up being harmful. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, just, um, I think I think it can totally be a part of it. Um, I think that a lot of that comes from like misconceptions on what yoga actually is, yeah. and that it is a religion, which it isn't, um, and that inherently yoga is not like um, tied to only one religion, though, like Hinduism, other religions do practice it and like yoga philosophy is like inherent in Hinduism, but that doesn't mean yoga is a religion <laughs> at no. all. And I think that again comes to like the misinformation and no. we accept that not we, but like say dominant culture accepts like that misinformation and that it, that's being taken as true, not the actual truth. Um, one thing I was in a, like a group call yesterday with um, like three really amazing teachers and like thought leaders in like the kid children's literature space. And one of the one of the co-participants uh she she does a lot of this work like in schools with educators and parents and on um like diverse diverse literature for kids and we actually had the same question and um, i wish i wish i had like a memory where i can remember what she said word for word because it was amazing but she said you know when that when I, when i get that pushback from like people about you know separation of church and state she's like there is no real separation of church and state, not even here, because like Christianity and the culture of Christianity is like in all of dominant culture. It's yeah. all like centered around that. So she's like, how can you really say that anything's really separate when our lives have been like constructed to be centered around that in so many ways, but we don't even, we don't even realize it, you know? Um, so I'll just say, I'll just, I'll just say that her name, her name's yeah. Archa, but she, she mentioned that and that, that really stayed with me because it's like, okay, it's not that it's separation of church and state, it's separation of whatever's foreign and what, what I want to like hold on to and what's foreign and I don't want to bring in. Yeah. It's like, what's convenient for me to be yeah. safe or, or, or following it. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, okay, well, we are, we're running out of time, so I want to honor your time. How can human beings listening to this find you and soak up all of your knowledge and, and, and learn from you and work with you? Um, my website at findyourbreath.net. 
um, you connect with me there or sign up for my newsletter and then also on Instagram and same, same handle um, at find your breath and you can connect with me there as well. Um, I teach, I do teach one-on-one, but I do teach group class series and weekly chanting classes um, that all kind of center around really connecting to these not always, or I would say underrepresented aspects of yoga. So if you're interested in learning, um, you can always join in, but yeah. Awesome, awesome. And I'll put the link to your article uh, in the Anti-Racism Daily as well. Is there, is it linkable? If I got it as an email, is there a link? Yeah, if you go on Anti-Racism Daily to the, and like on the web, on the homepage, there's an archives okay. and you can just type in spiritual bypassing and the link will, there'll, there'll be some other related articles to the too, but that, that link will pop up and you can just like copy and paste that as an archived okay. article. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was uh, such a I've done a few interviews on this general topic um, and um, it's so beautiful to hear everyone's different perspectives um, with, with seemingly potentially similar backgrounds, but everyone has such beautiful um, nuances and, and um, experiences and, and knowledge to share. So thank you so much, uh, Melissa, for joining me. And I was just very excited. It's, social media is the weirdest thing because it's like such an evil, thing but it's so beautiful in so many ways because it allows us to connect i mean i never would have found you or learned from you or helped other people learn from you if it weren't for social media so it's a very um double so true so true um all right well thank you so much thank you for having me joe hi there thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode of conscious anti-racism Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts, and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D, and please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.